The Cinema Limbo podcast is part of Podnose, the UK's leading independent entertainment podcasting network. For episode archives of Cinema Limbo and all of the shows on the network, visit us at www.podnose.com. You can also follow us on Twitter via at Podnose or send us an email via admin at podnose.com. have shown that the laws of nature break down when examined on the scale of an atom. All assumptions about the universe can become null and void when venturing into new frontiers. My name is Jeremy Phillips, writer, critic and Englishman, and you're listening to Cinema Limbo. Tonight's entertainment is the 2014 science fiction action thriller Lucy, starring Scarlett Johansson and written and directed by Luc Besson. You join my guest Chris Armsby and I in his drawing room with some refreshments. Hello, Chris. Hello. What can you tell me about Luke Bessel? Uh, <laughs> he directed it's the not fifth. It's that hard a question. I, well, you wouldn't think so. Um, he directed the Fifth Element. Yes. And I think did he do a series of bafflingly popular films about taxis or something? He produced the Ta- ta- Taxi and its sequels. Yeah. He's produced a lot of French action yeah. movies. He's really made his bread and butter there for the last 15 mm. years or so. He was one of the pioneers of the cinema de look, a much more stylized uh, school of French filmmaking in the 1980s, and broke through to uh, international filmmaking in the, ni- in the 90s, uh, after the success of The Big Blue, then mm, with, uh, um, Nikita, Leon, and then The Fifth Element. Yeah. Which I think may be one of the few films of his I've actually seen. Um, have you not seen any of the films that I've mentioned so far? Uh, no, a lot of them don't have the re- requisite amount of spaceships in. So, no, I've, I'm have i aware of The Big Blue and I'm aware of uh, Nikita. but have fi- you, s- you haven't seen Leon? Uh, no. Should we just end this here then? <sighs> you disappoint me. Um, but after The Fifth Element, he made his bid as a serious filmmaker with... Uh, the Messenger, Joan of Arc, his big epic film about the Maid of Orléans, mm. starring his then wife Mila Jovovich, whom he divorced before the film came out. Oh, the film did not do well, and um, he kind of disappeared from filmmaking for the next eight or nine years and devoted himself to producing. And he turned out all these successful um, action movies, mm. including the Transporter movies. Oh, so okay. He's, he's responsible yeah. for Jason Statham's career. Uh, um, the UK's greatest screen comedian and when he returned to filmmaking he did so with a jumble of projects of all kinds Um, he made a film called Angel A about a con man who is helped by a beautiful angel with whom he then falls in love he did a trilogy of films based on some children's stories he wrote about uh, a boy called Arthur who gets involved with some little miniature people who live in his garden Okay. The first film also starred Madonna and David Bowie. But why not? Um, he did a biography of Aung San Suu Kyi, which is apparently the worst film he's ever done. 
Is that from? Is that something he said, or is this just critical consensus? No, that was critical consensus. Right. Okay. Um, and he returned to action cinema with Lucy. Hmm. Um, this film, I think, got a bit of a bum rap when it came out. It was surprisingly successful at the box office. Yeah. It was an international hit, but I think it was unfairly dismissed by a lot of critics because the film's central conceit is pseudoscientific gobbledygook. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's the... Um, it's, the uh, it's the 10% brain theory, capacity. Which I theory. think has been roundly... If you go on the internet, I'm sure you can find people like Neil deGrasse Tyson talking about how it's a load of nonsense or something. Are we always complaining about something? I know, yeah. Um, I've heard it mentioned that, that yes, the, the brain generally uses only 10% of its capacity at a time, mm. but the brain as a whole, doesn't work at 100% of the time because that's called epilepsy. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, but as a concept for a film, I think it's a good starting point. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's a lovely little... It's one of those concepts that that could work anyway. You can see it working as a sort of kind of comic strip in 2000 AD or something. Yeah. No, a terrific idea for a film. So what was your reaction on watching it? Had you seen it before? Well, this is complicated, and I'm I'm aware this sounds glib, and I can only apologise. This is this is honest. I can't remember for a film that's about using your brain. I can't remember if I've watched this before. <laughs> I it started, and that was my, I I've never watched a film before where I've had this nagging sense of déjà vu, and what about Groundhog Day? <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. Or, or, or an unintentional sense of. Um, Deja vu. I, I I don't know. I think I've seen it before. I think it must have been a film, the love film sent to me, and I just slung it in the DVD one evening and watched it. But I'm not a hundred percent certain. Well, I think it's appropriate that um, uh, we're recording this episode the same day as we're recording uh, an episode on Michael Jackson's Moonwalker, mm. because they are both ninety-minute films about people achieving godhood. <laughs> yes, that's true. I put off seeing it for a long time. I've, I've, I've been a big fan of Vasson's work for many years. Um, I actually went to uh, the Guardian interview he did at the National Film Theatre, oh. when it was still called that, when Joan of Arc was released. And uh, my phone went off halfway through and he gave me a very dirty look. <laughs> oh dear. So that's the story of me and Luc Besson. And uh, I generally try and make an effort to see any new films he has coming out because they always seem to have this very light, very sort of summery, bright energy mm. to them. Uh, obviously I didn't go and see Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets because nobody did. No, I don't think I don't think Mila Jovich went to see that one or anyone Well really. they're they're not married anymore, so no, that's it's... fair enough. But uh, I, I think I finally saw it on television a couple of years ago and I thought it's not as sophisticated as as it thinks it is no. scientifically. But for, for an attempt to merge two thousand and one with one of the Luc Besson French action movies, and get it down to under ninety minutes. Yeah, this is a pretty impressive achievement. There's, it zips along. It's there's some quite dull philosophy in it, but yeah, it's never as a film apart from maybe when Morgan Freeman's on screen a bit too much. It's never boring. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, th- this has got some of the worst philosophical thinking in it, I think, this side of the Matrix trilogy. Um, There's a lot of exposition. Mm. And most of it is nonsense. Well, this is... Uh, it's just stuff that the, 
that they need to explain so that you understand what's happening yeah. in the movie. Certainly towards the end, there's a long sequence where I think they, they're discussing the philo- philosophy of time or some life yes, or something. That the only constant in the universe is time, that's which it. everything else should be measured. Um, I'm not sure that makes sense, I'm, because pro- time is not a constant. It'll probably turn out to be based on rock-solid philosophy or something, and somebody's... Spoiler, it isn't. Oh, OK, there you go. Uh, pretty much everything scientific in this film is total garbage. <laughs> But that's not the point. No, exactly. No, um, I swear. One of the things that I'm not sure about is I think I kept getting this mixed up with Limitless. Oh right. And yeah. I'm, I'm not sure if that's one of the reasons why I sat there kind of squinting at it, going, "Have I seen this?" Bradley Cooper looks very different these days, doesn't he? Well, yes, a, a, a bit sexier to me. <laughs> um, oh, you heteronormative <laughs> devil! Yes, I know. I'm just objectifying. I find it much more attractive when he's playing that raccoon. Okay. <laughs> I'm woke. <laughs> There's a lot of stock footage used in the early part of the movie. Mm. It really reminds me of Ed Wood. Yes, it's 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 weird, isn't it? Because it's it it's it's a deliberate stylistic decision. What well, what stupid thing to say? It's in the film, of course. It is. But you know what I mean. But, but then it just it's like they lose interest in it after about. The first ten minutes or something. Yes, drawing parallels between how Lucy is being mm. courted and caught by the drug cartel and predator and prey relationships in the wild, or mousetrap. Yes, a mousetrap at one point, yeah. Um, it would have been interesting to see that go carrying all the way through the film. Yeah. But Besson seems to just think, yeah, it's enough. Yes, I suppose maybe that's the thing. It's bored of that now, and... I want, I, want, <laughs> I want to get on to the, the, the next weird thing to happen in my movie. And I wonder as well if it's about priming the audience for what's coming, that you're, you want them to make the connection between not necessarily the fact that, oh, look, here's Lucy and she is being preyed on, so here's some footage of some predators licking their lips, and... Whether it's that thing of just it's priming the audience into a specific mindset where they are then prepared to accept some some of the more philosophical stuff, I don't know. It's it's oh. it's it it already feels deliberately a bit more art house than your yeah. average action movie because it has these cutaways to animals. I think there is also the parallel between the behaviour of the. Um, criminals mm. and animals because they're still being governed by their yeah their, their lower uh, mortal desires and behavior whereas lucy is about to become yes uh, like, like, a, like a gas or something <laughs> yes an intelligent gas uh the i don't know i mean but yeah i'd love to know if it was that that it was a it was something that was only ever intended to be in the the first half, the first few moments of the film, to sort of, as I say, to get the audience used to thinking in a slightly different way about what they were seeing on screen, or whether his, they forgot their password to Shutterstock or something. <laughs> Just couldn't get any more stock footage. Um, Besson said that he deliberately structured the film in three acts, and with each act, um, uh, harking back to a different film. Okay. So the first third is meant to be reminiscent of Leon. His yeah. Film. So you have 
you have the criminal stuff, you have the drug smuggling, all that kind of business. Then once Lucy starts to open up her brain more, um, it becomes Inception. Yeah. And then in the final third of the movie, where Lucy starts to travel through time and space and become a higher being, it becomes 2001. Yeah, that makes sense. Good. <laughs> <laughs> 10 out of 10 to Luke Bessel. So the, mo- the movie actually starts in ancient times... Oh yes, it does, doesn't it? With yeah, with Lucy, the proto-human, drinking from a, uh, a pond, and a voiceover by Scarlett Johansson asks us what we've done with life itself mm. in the two million years since we've had it. In maybe the clumsiest bit of uh, setup I've heard ever in some narration, because it, it's it comes back at the end and thought. You didn't need that. Yes, I mean, I'll, I'll, skipping all the way to the end, the, the film does end with her saying, "What was it?" Well, like, now you know what now, to do with it. And, and I don't. <laughs> what you mean? Inject myself with a lot of synthetic drugs? Yeah, I suppose that's true. I'd rather not. No. But we do jump forward to Taipei. That's right. Yes. Where Lucy, the American party girl, is being talked by her boyfriend into delivering a suitcase full of something. And it turns out her boyfriend's a real skis. Yes, he's not very nice, is he? And we quickly find out that he's mixed up with some bad dudes when he gets his brains blown out. Yes. And that's quite... It's quite sudden and shocking. It's quite shocking, yeah. It, took, it, it surprised... That, that did surprise me. And but they just do it in broad daylight in the middle of a street. And, and are apparently <laughs> able to go... There's actually... From a, there's some quite subtle be, little bit, bits in some of that sequence because as she's being dragged through the hotel corridor, a maid comes out of the hotel room and just kind of looks and does a U-turn and goes back into the room. <laughs> and there's a sense that this is just yeah, and this is just a normal day in the Taipei Hilton or wherever yeah. it is, and this has happened a lot before. Um, I just really like that as it's a, little, a little bit of world building. Yeah, it's well, it's one of those nice little show not tell moments, but it's not it's almost it's not quite thrown away, but it's not really drawn attention to. And yes, in comparison to some of the, um, as you say, that they're having a conversation, and then suddenly there's a shot of a mouse approaching a rat trap. It's considerably more subtle than the use of stock footage. Mm. But it turns out that uh, the suitcase is full of this experimental drug, which is required to deliver to. Mr. Jay, yes, and uh, that's it. Yes, Mr. Mr. Jang, isn't it? I think. Yes, and um, he's he's so evil that he walks out of a room full of dead bodies, and washes <laughs> washes the blood off his hands using a bottle of mineral. Water. I was going to say that that having just said how nicely subtle the sequence of the maid coming out is, the whole introduction of the villain is there's it's also pointlessly evil, isn't it? He's stepping over a corpse. Oh, he's he's really oh he's the worst, isn't he? Mm. He's got blood-stained hands because he's a regular Joe Pesky. <laughs> yes, well, yeah, definitely. Yeah, he's he's a he's a pesky villain, all right. Um, it, this is all the sequence as well. I I kept thinking that they were going to do not exactly not exactly a joke, but you get the whole sequence where she's talking to him via the translator, and I assumed at some point he was just going to throw away, make some throwaway remark in English to show that he had actually understood everything. And that all of the previous sequence was kind of just a weird power game on his mm. on his part, but it is all about weird power games anyway, isn't it? Because he straps, he has her dragged off to a chair and makes her open the suitcase whilst everyone's hiding behind yes, rubbish because there's a bomb inside. Yeah, 
which again makes you wonder what kind of character her boyfriend he's becoming not less and less nice by the minute isn't he really and he can't even speak for himself now because there's blood smeared all over the pavement yes along with what's left of his brain and speaking of what's left of brain um, <laughs> they drag in their pet junkie mm. to test this uh, blue crystal powder on and he's in a bit of a state isn't he yeah um it's all very i don't know uh, a, a bog standard action film at this point, yeah, isn't it? It, it? it does so far feel a lot like a film that is produced but not directed. Yeah. Because it has that um, sheen of exoticism to it and mm. a, a very good actor who looks like they might be slumming it a bit. Yes, yeah. <laughs> um, what did you think of Scarlett Johansson's performance during the film? It's, uh, I, I, it's good. You know, she's obviously got a very, very difficult role to take because you have to as you say you have to go from good time party girl to um transcendent to god yes to god thing at the end and i think i think she does a good job of conveying it actually she's she's able to you know she i think she does a lot of very subtle sort of acting tricks she changes her stance and she moves a lot more purposefully once the drug kicks in and stuff um Am I right? I, I I know I'm always in danger of getting actresses and actors confused, but am I right in thinking that she's in Under the Skin? Yes. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And I don't know. I don't know whether this was just... This was post or pre-Under the Skin? Pre. Pre. So I wonder, maybe she just likes science fiction films. <laughs> well, I would hope that um, maybe she uh, went through something similar to Anne Hathaway. But <laughs> um, Anne Hathaway was very keen on doing... Uh, something a bit more unusual, something sort of science fictiony, and then was um, taken by Jonathan Demi, who's a friend of hers who she'd worked with before, to see Ben Wheatley's A Field in England. Oh right! And she said, "This is it. I want to make something like this." Hmm. And as a result, she made Colossal. Yeah. Which is a very weird movie that wouldn't have otherwise been produced, but because Anne Hathaway signed to do it, yeah, everything comes together. So. I think it's something similar with Under the Skin. That wouldn't have happened without no, Scarlett Johansson not. wanting to do it. And she really threw herself into that. Oh, yes, yeah. Lucy, I think, would have been made without her. Oh, because yeah. Because Besson can, can draw on a lot of talent. With, yeah, I mean... He's got a lot of money to throw around, I think. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, he used to, before Valeria destroyed his studio. <laughs> yeah, that's... Which is a shame. Yes, it is, isn't it? I mean, it's. I don't even. The, the terrible thing is, I don't even know anything about Valerian except that it's become the the punchline to. From what I hear, it's not even that bad. It's just no one went to see no. it. It's one of those. Is it one of those? It's a French graphic novel with bande dessinée. Yeah, and I'm sure actually, in some ways, it's probably very commendable. There's probably lots of sci-fi world building and stuff, which mm. again, look, you know, you look at something like The Fifth Element. He's very very good at you know one of the I, I do like the fifth element a lot and one of the reasons is it at least doesn't look like any other science fiction film that's been made well apart from Blade Runner do you think I, it looks like okay it, it looks like an east coast I mean it, it is an east coast Blade Runner but it's kind of reversed because Los Angeles mm. is all grim and grimy and horrible whereas New York is all sort of nice and clean and sunny I suppose so in a weird sort of way it, it's not exactly that it reminds me of it reminds me a little bit of 2000 idea in Mega City One, in that on the surface, at least, Mega City One, it should be. A f- it looks fantastic. You know, it's a city that's got weather control and it's got flying cars, and you can coat yourself in um, inflatable 
plastic and bounce around in boing arenas and things. And, you know, so you look on the surface and you think, yeah, this is somewhere that I want to live. But then, of course, you realise it's horrible and crime's out of control and that the judges are all fascists. And, that, and it reminds me of the look of the fifth element, reminds me of the sunnier side of Mega City 1. You know, the, the kind of side that they would show in the tourist brochures, I guess. Yes, sorry, I was going somewhere with that and I got completely sidetracked myself. Well, they test the drug on their pet junkie. <laughs> yes. And he laughs maniacally until they blow his brains out. Yes, again, because they're... Because and, they're just bad. They're just nasty guys. And as you say, it's interesting that we're watching this, or, or we're talking about this on the same day as we're talking about Moonwalker, which also features bad drugs men doing bad <laughs> things because they're bad people. But it is... Well, here, I mean, this is... It's plausible in inverted commas. It's... Yeah. It, because it, you can imagine... A drugs cartel. I mean, I, I was talking to someone the other day about Mexican drugs cartels and about the absolutely horrifying things oh, yeah. they do to people. I thought, yeah, I can imagine Mexican drugs cartels doing this. So Taiwanese, sure. Yeah. No, I think. I, I, but but there's also there's there's what what we talked about in Moonwalker. So I don't want to talk about it too much. But but in there the unsophisticated the unsophisticated way in which the drug pushers are portrayed in that they're bad people because they're bad and they have spiders. Yeah. Uh, whereas here, they're bad because they're thugs. And and you get the feeling this is a a, a workable criminal enterprise. Yes. Yeah. This is a business empire. Whereas in Moonwalker, it was because he wanted to be famous. Yes. And as the man who got the world's children addicted to drugs as like a... Yeah, as a, a whole. As a yeah. whole, because there was no... There, there was no sort of deeper thought than that. No, exactly. As, as, as you said at the time, the Children's Film Foundation would have made <laughs> this a lot more sophisticated. Um, so, having established that these are bad drug men, mm. we then cut to a lecture about the evolution of the uh, brain from yes. Morgan Freeman, yeah. who spends much of the film explaining things to the audience. Yeah, he's Mr... Well, he's the personification of Mr. Voiceover, isn't he? He's, yeah, he's, but this time he's not just talking about penguins or something. He's talking about... And I, I just sat there, and, and this is the point where the film drags, because suddenly it turns into a TED Talk or something. But it's... I just sat... But it's a TED Talk on the subject of gibberish. Yes. And I just sat there, and I, my, my reaction was, was just... I thought how boring it would have been to be one of the extras in that sequence, where you're just watching Morgan Freeman talk about his theories about the brain and yeah but on the other hand you're being paid to sit down yeah that's true yeah you... we we both know someone who works as an extra and <laughs> just standing around all day is probably a bit tiring whereas if you can just turn up in your own clothes and just sit for a while it's a bit more civilized yeah, on your phone between takes it's probably not too bad mm. um but he explains a lot of stuff that's nonsense um I didn't bother fact-checking any of it. I no, just, it doesn't I seem... I just to... assumed that because the basic concept of the movie is made up, yeah. anything else is likely to be tainted by that. No, it's fine, isn't it? You go, this is a film about somebody that learns to use 100% of their brain power. Got it. Go. And yes, and you almost don't need... You almost don't need all this stuff. You, you, need, a li- you need the basic minimum so that you understand the context. I suppose you need... At some point, you need a doctor character to come in and go, what you've taken is a synthetic narcotic that, what is it, it emulates hormones found in pregnancy or something. Yeah. And, and it norm- normally, normally the brain only operates at 10% of its capacity at any one time. But yours is operating at 
whatever it's, it's reached now. And it's and it's growing. It, it was growing faster as I was watching. In fact, doesn't don't they have a sequence later in the hospital where a doctor gives that speech anyway? I don't think so. I think maybe, when, when maybe, he, maybe it's like a progress report. That might have, yeah. But she already she knows she she knows what's happening yeah. because her brain's reached the point where she can analyse her own body. Yes. I suppose where she can you know she can already hear colours and and, and, and whistle pictures. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I wonder whether you could have made this film without Morgan Freeman. I mean, obviously, you'd have had to have somebody to, somebody else to talk to at the end. She's got the cop. Yeah, I'm just wondering whether you could have you could have saved some money and and edited Morgan Freeman out. I think that the film as it is, you need him there. Yeah. But I think at the script level, the other element is it's it's another lead role that you can cast another big name in. Yes. And yeah. If you're making a film where you need a. Uh, Kindly authority figure who helps the mm. protagonist. Morgan Freeman is Why a very safe Morgan? bet. Yeah, I mean, it makes a nice change for a film about God, where he's not playing God. Yes. Well, Lucy's having surgery, and she has the the big bag of drugs implanted in her because she's going to be one of a group of people smuggling the drug back to. Yes. They say Europe. Is she supposed to fly to London? I I guess it's London that she's meant to go. Well, back she's going to Paris, isn't she? There's a, a lot of people seem to be going back to France for, for some reason. Um, well, that's where the studio is. <laughs> yes, yeah. There's one's going to Rome, one's going to Berlin. Mm, yeah, and one... Madrid? Possibly. I mean, they all end up in Paris very quickly anyway. But well, they get grabbed by Interpol, yeah. so... Um, but the... Yeah, and then Julian Ryan Tut turns up and explains yeah. the evil plan. Wasn't, wasn't, that, wasn't that a nice little cameo by Julian Reintart as the world's nicest criminal mastermind? Mm. I actually thought his I actually thought his character was going to come back and that Lucy was going to get vengeance, but I don't think No, he doesn't he doesn't come no, back at all. No, he was obviously just available for a day or something. But yeah, that's quite a nice It's 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 a really nice little cameo because it's it's not personal. No. Isn't it anything against these people and you get the feeling that maybe he's telling the truth, saying, "Yeah, we'll take we'll take the the drugs out, and mm. you'll we'll give you money and send you off." Yeah, maybe he's telling the truth. No, of course he's not telling the truth. He's they're going to rip those bags of drugs yeah. out. No anaesthetic, and just let you bleed to death in the middle of the road. But he he does he he for for a character that's barely on screen, he really does portray that it's this thing of it's somebody that's convinced himself to believe it. But he's decided that they go off and they go. These people are going to go home and they're going to have a lovely time and everything will be all right forever and ever. Yeah. And he's not desperately not thinking about it in any kind of detail. Um, he already believes the lie. Yeah. And I, I like this. It's offhand mention. Listen, if you if you are thinking about talking to the police, don't forget we do have yes. the names and addresses of all your family members. Yeah, and it's a. I suppose in a way as well, it's the obvious contrast to the ruthlessly efficient. Because you might expect that you might expect the doctor that comes in to explain the plot to be just a bit shouty and a bit horrid, and yeah, why not get somebody in to do it differently and just a nice change of tone? Mm. I, I I wonder how much of the the persona was mm. the actor's decision. It might be one of those occasions when it's just an actor comes in and goes, "Yeah, have you considered doing it like this?" And yeah, it's a great idea if mm. you did. And uh, yeah, it's it's a great little performance. I like it. Meanwhile, Morgan Freeman's still battering on. Yes, he's still got his lecture going on. And but cells that choose between immortality and reproduction. Yes. Again, 
we need to, we, I need, we need to have like a science consultant on the show. I mean, mm. We've got Ed Bloomer, but he's a physicist. Um, I did biology at GCSE, if that helps, and it never came up. Actually, I do know a research biochemist. Do you want to phone a friend? I wouldn't say it's not tempting. <laughs> Maybe you can get edit in a little insert. I'll tell you what, listener. Uh, next time I talk to her, I'll try and remember to ask her and make a note of what she says because I would like some kind of scientific mm. uh, response to this, even if she says, as I suspect, no, it's all made-up bullshit, because I, this is the sort of movie that she would probably like, just because oh, really? of the action yeah. stuff. She's someone I have asked to be on the show before and said no. Oh. But um, I know a lot of people who are alarmed by microphones, mm. um, but um, I'll see if I can get an expert opinion. So while she's waiting to be uh, carted off to the, uh, the plane... She's being held in a room and being, oh, yes, being yes. groped by goons. Um, she's also the only woman uh, among the smugglers. I think, yes. They're all, the, other, the other three are all men. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And um, she uh, obviously uh, rejects their creepiness, so they beat the crap out of her yes. and cause the bag to rupture. Yeah, and one of those... Moments when you think this is not such a good operation as maybe Mr. Jang thinks it is. <laughs> if his couriers are being beaten up and killed down in the basement. But yeah, it's... And then you get the the transformation sequence, don't you? Where yeah. she's kind of hanging from... I'm, now I'm no fancy cinematographer. I just felt that the camera maybe wasn't in the best place. It's kind of in the corner of the room. And they've obviously done this thing where they've built a set that can rotate yeah it's just that it doesn't seem to be best positioned to show off the effect i don't know maybe it's just me but there seem to be a few times when i just kind of felt that if they put the camera in the other corner of the room it would have looked a bit better pointing straight at um possibly yeah but then it's hard to do the revolving room uh, i suppose that's true yeah because she has to be uh, chained to one of the side walls and yes. not the end wall yeah no that's true I suppose it was just Orson Welles apparently was notorious for walking onto sets when he was appearing as an actor and, and loudly going you're, you're going to put the camera there are you <laughs> and I kind of had this vague moment as I say I just looked at it and went okay it's doing it's, you know it's Luke Besson's film he can do what he likes with it well he generally I mean he's He's generally made technically adept films. Mm. I mean, they've, they've been a bit roguey from time to time in artistic terms. I haven't seen what I regarded as his worst films. I haven't seen the Joan of Arc movie. Right. I haven't seen his Anson Suchi movie, The Lady, um, a film that <laughs> maybe we would look and see with different eyes now. Well, possibly, yeah. After the whole um, uh, massacring her own people yes. side. Um, and I haven't seen any of the um, uh, Arthur and the Invisibles films. I didn't even see much of um, The Extraordinary Adventures of Adèle Blanchet. I can't say I even heard which of it. Which is another book based on, another film based on a, a French graphic novel, mm. uh, which our occasional guest Anthony Malone raves about. Oh, okay. He also grumbles about Scarlett Johansson acting like a zombie in all her films. I have to have a word with him about that. Yeah, no, I don't think that's. He hasn't seen Hail Caesar. No, I can't say I have seen Hell's She's great in it. Okay. She's essentially playing Esther Williams. 
the uh, swimming movie star um, as a very self-confident, very loud, opinionated, brassy dame Hmm. um, who is complaining that her fish costume doesn't fit anymore because she's pregnant. But she doesn't quite know who the father is. And the the studio is trying to think of how to solve this problem. Okay. (laughs) But it's it's a small role, but she's very, very good. It's just that she keeps being cast as people who are very blank. Yeah, you know, well, that that's right. I mean, that, I suppose that's it more than anything. Is if you're if you're playing those roles, you might get a certain reputation for woodenness, even if it's not deserved. Mm. She has a BAFTA, but no Oscar nomination. Okay, what's the BAFTA for? Lost in Translation. Oh, okay. Yeah. Bill Murray won Best Actor the same year, but was beaten to the Oscar by Sean Bastard Penn. Really? Yeah. For what? Mystic River. Oh, I don't, haven't seen it. Okay. <laughs> Is he any good in it? He's fine. Yeah. Sean, wife-beating pet. The world's worst author. He's got a book out. Oh, oh yes, he has, hasn't he? Now, yeah. Yeah, I read a very, very scathing review of that recently. <laughs> Do you remember when he was a guest star in Friends? No, I think I think I might stop watching it at that point. He was uh, he was in a, like a two-parter as Phoebe's new boyfriend, and I thought, isn't it interesting that they've decided to cast in a sitcom a man with no sense of humour of any kind, and no self-awareness of any kind? That was a fun, that was a fun uh, adventure. Mm. So she's been rolling around the ceiling. Yes. Like uh, Lionel Richie. And making a lot of noise. You'd think one of the other drugs pushers would maybe have just stuck their head in to make sure the things were okay, but maybe at that point they're drawing lots as to who is going to go and tell Mr. Jang that uh, they've killed one of the couriers. <laughs> which, which of us can afford to lose a hand? <laughs> yes. Whilst Morgan Freeman is talking about how 20% would give you control of your body, but this is just all hypothesis. Yes, I quite like that there's a wonderful bit in this sequence where he keeps he keeps stating hypotheses with absolute certainty and again i think it reminded me of one of the ed wood films although i'm not sure precisely which one but there was just something about as you say this absolute but it might have been um, this, this misunderstanding of how science works yes um it might have been plan nine from outer space where they're talking about how the bomb that detonates sunlight oh works yes yes yeah it really showed that wood was not a scientist uh, Besson was originally a diver. Okay. Which is why The Big Blue is such a, a yeah. passion project of his. <laughs> a film uh, based on a true story in which both the characters, main characters die. Both of them were still alive at the time the film was being made, and one of them is still alive now. Right. The main character in the film dives to a depth that he cannot survive because he feels more at home in the water than on land. And uh, he ends the film swimming off into the darkness with a dolphin. Uh, in real life, he shot himself 15 years later. Mm, with the dolphin? No, on land. <laughs> yes, yes. He didn't use a harpoon gun, although that would have been bitter irony. Yes. Um, what do you think overall about the film's attitude to science? Because it's playing so it, fast and loose. It's the Doctor Who approach to science, isn't it? It, it likes science in general. But it's not really worried about... I, th- I think the trouble is, if you got too hung up on the science, this film... If you got too hung up on the science, this film would have ended with her dying from a drug <laughs> Um It's just, you know, it's there, isn't it? It's, it, it make up a few big words and... I, I think 
it, it does make me a little uneasy because it plays so fast and loose with stating, mm. stating things outright that are not true, stating things that are hypotheses that have nothing to back them up. It's, if, you can, yeah. if you're fudging things for the sake of the story, fine, fine. And it, then you can just skate over it. But here there is so much pseudoscientific stuff that it does, it does feel a little bit uneasy that you shouldn't be I really saying this to an audience that might assume this is how yeah, science works. It, it, I suppose it's, it's the, the method of delivery, isn't it? If, if this had just been delivered by, as you say, if she'd gone to a hospital and a doctor hooks up to a machine and, and looks at it and goes, my God, these readings show that you're using 20% of your brain capacity or something, and it's going up. There's a difference between that and, and Morgan Freeman standing... Delivering a lecture. Giving a lecture to camera, yes. It gives it much more of a stamp of authority. Uh, I'm struggling now to think of... You know, Another bad science in movies. It would be... Yes, it would be the difference between Disney's The Black Hole, where instead of um, Dr. Reinhardt spouting all his um, monologues about going into the black hole or whatever it is he's talking about... If they'd intercut it with a fictional astrophysicist saying this is based on actual science, <laughs> like Carl Sagan, asterisk not Carl Sagan. It's uh, it's uh, that I've been struggling for a while to think of what it reminded me about, and it's the line from um, Chris Morris's uh, Brass Eye Special, isn't it? Where There's the... no scientific evidence, but that doesn't mean it's not true. That's the one, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and speaking of which, he does then immediately quote Alan Partridge by saying that this would be an evolution and not a revolution. Oh, God. The vagaries of the English sense of humour are lost on Luc Besson. Mm. I showed by the time my phone went off and he gave me a dirty look. I've been telling that story for years. People still pretend to be interested by it. <laughs> the next stage, he says, is that after we've gained full control over our own bodies, we'd then be able to control other people's and yeah. it matter. Of course. That's obviously a logical extension. There's something a little bit self-serving about the way that this whole sequence is presented. And people then ask questions which allows Morgan Freeman's character to say... It's almost as if it's, as you say, it's confirming its own pseudoscience or something. Yeah. Yeah. But yes, of course. Well, obviously, after you've... um, after you've gained control of other people, of course you're going to be able to see mobile phone signals or whatever the hell yeah. it is. Yeah. And Travel through time and look round corners without a prism or whatever. And hear paintings. Yes. And, and smell... Uh, smell colanders or something, yeah. <laughs> We're getting a lot of mileage out of that running joke, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> Lucy uh, wakes up and uh, is now very centred and composed mm. and... I think, I think you're right, it's the, the key to her performance is she seems totally different just in the way she holds herself. Yeah. So she immediately is able to outwit the guard, grab the gun and escape. Yeah. Uh, walks into another room, shoots everyone. Yeah. And this again, and I'm aware again, I'm just picking on the film from the sidelines, but she sits down at the table, she starts eating and then she looks down and realises she's got a bullet lodged in her shoulder. I had to go back and watch that sequence three times before I saw her getting shot because it's all it's done in a slightly cack-handed way. Mm. And actually what it is is that if you look really carefully at that sequence, one of the characters, there's a very faint muzzle flash, but it's so... I sat there the first time and went, where did that come from? I think it's, it's just meant to show that this is 
it's fast. I suppose that, that's... That she kills all five of them in the time it takes for one of them to get off one shot. And as well, I suppose, I guess the other thing you want is you want the audience to be surprised that she's been shot. Because, again, that's something else that then shows how her body is changing. And maybe if you had a cutaway shot to somebody firing a gun and a cutaway shot to the shoulder and a blood splatter, it would take away from that moment when she looks down and goes, oh, there's a thing, and, and then pulls she, it. And she pulls it out yeah. without any pain or anything yeah. like that. Like in uh, the, Co- the Cloverfield Paradox, when Roy from the IT crowd's arm comes off. Oh, <laughs> God, yes. And I do mean comes off. Hmm. It just, starts, it just starts crawling around on its own and it's fine. Apparently it can happen in space. It's based on actual science. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, like the big monster that they see. They have those in Australia. Yes. That's what happened to Crocodile Dundee. She goes outside and hijacks a taxi after shooting a taxi driver who doesn't speak English. Yeah. And this <laughs> is where I start to lose sympathy for her character. Well, as she's evolving, she's starting to leave her humanity behind. So she's yes. becoming less empathetic with human beings. Yeah. I think that just shooting dead someone who, for the crime of not being able to speak English, is maybe the wrong way of doing that. I can understand what it's trying to show, but but it's like, for me, it's almost like flicking a switch because the film is meant to be about her revenge revenge on the drug pressure things. And I I just lost, you know, at this point, I just lost, again, um... (laughs) I I keep doing this. I've got to. I should never watch Austin Powers because now I just end up whenever you think about like, their families. it's this sequence of yes, it's kids sitting there going, "When's Daddy coming?" Home? <laughs> <laughs> oh, but all his oh, so his children. Anyway. He was just a taxi driver. Yeah, he was probably he might have been a horrible person, but it just it. it they should. He, she should have waited until he did something bad. Or just pointed the gun at him, and he says, some, and she realizes he doesn't speak English, and so she goes with the next guy. I, I just don't feel it was actually necessary for her to kill him. Um, but it's possible it's meant. To, it's possible I'm having a bit of a sense of humour failure that that's actually just meant to be funny. I don't think it's funny. Yeah. No, that's. It. I mean, Besson's films are sometimes a bit weird in their sense of humour, and also sometimes his attitude to women. Okay. Yeah. Have you heard the story about how the reason why Terence Stamp took the role in The Phantom Menace Oh yes. was because he wanted to act opposite Natalie Portman because when he saw her in Leon he really fancied her and she was about 13 in that movie? Yeah. I mean, all I'm going to say in Terence Stamp's defence is that he may have just assumed she was older cast to act younger or something like that. He doesn't look that much older. Okay. <laughs> Maybe he thought the film was older. But, the but again, that doesn't excuse it either, really, no. does it? But the film has a... The, that story obviously has the terrific punchline of the fact that he doesn't get to meet her anyway because he's put in a blue room with George Lucas. <laughs> <laughs> and and he was told, oh, don't worry, that George has a reputation for giving his cast gifts when they when they finish filming. There'll be a really nice gift waiting for you after, after you finish all your scenes. And he goes back to his, his trailer or his dressing room at the end of his last day and there's a box waiting for him. It's all nicely wrapped up. And he unwraps it and it's a set of Star Wars stencils. Yeah. So Lucy arrives at the hospital and uh, shoots a patient. 
Oh, that was it. And again, the, the following up on the taxi driver bit, and again, there's a weird attempt to justify it here, which he goes, oh, we would have died anyway. And on that occasion, I think it's okay. That's because, that, because if she's seeing everything very emotionlessly mm. and dispassionately, saying, you're just wasting resources trying to keep this person True. alive. They're not, they're, they're effectively dead and you're just wasting time and effort. It's a bit more obviously a joke. You know, again, it's a bit more obviously a joke in that case as well. I know that we're, we're now talking about shooting people as a source of entertainment, but that <laughs> thing of going bang, oh my God, that's horrible. Why did you do that? Well, they would have died anyway. Mm. It's kind of set up. It's it's more of a set up punchline, I think, than the shooting of the taxi driver. But as I say, I'm just I just found myself losing sympathy with her because especially as it's then followed up by her phoning her mum. And having yeah. this very emotional conversation with her mama and oh, I remember everything, and and it's like I don't feel sorry for you now. Stop, stop trying to engage with me emotionally. I've decided that you're a monster. Maybe if she'd been trying to keep a hold on her humanity as it's slipping away, yeah, and, possibly, and not quite so readily mm. becoming. Um, yes, psychopathic is the wrong word. But, but no, as you say, th- but that it, distance. Try, trying to keep keep the distance small yeah. rather than seemingly pulling in different directions. But there's a few... For, for a film that wants to be a philosophical treatise on space and time and morality and so forth and so forth, there are a few points where the need for it to be an action film gets in the way of some of the character stuff or some of the, some of the philosophy. There's a... Jumping all the way forwards just for a second, there's a bit where they're where they're having the car chase through Paris and cars are crashing and fly- and I'm just sitting there, again. How many people are dying here? Yeah, that's that's one that makes me a little bit uncomfortable because it you need it to be like the eighteen, where no matter how many cars crash and explode, people always cr- climb out of the wreckage and run away. I don't know. I, I'm not. Sh- I suppose in a way, yes, because. You want her because she's the one who's been wronged. She's the one who's taking revenge on the evil drug people. Yeah. She's the one who should have the moral high ground. Yes, I think that's it more than anything, is that she loses the moral high ground. And it's not meant to be the kind of film where it's an ambiguous. You know, she's, she's very obviously the hero. Yeah. And. But she keeps losing the qualities that should make her a hero. And that, yeah, that bothers me quite, quite a bit. Well, if we jump forward in my notes uh, just a little bit. I wonder how much it's possible for a film to maintain suspense when the hero is God. That's actually, funny enough, that's something else I was thinking about as well. Yes, because at that point, the film could just stop, couldn't it? You know, she's achieved... She's only, and I think she's only at 20% at this point, isn't she? Or... Um, yeah, she gets to 30% by the time she calls the cop. Yeah. And as you say, she's achieved godhood. She's achieved mastery over space and time. That's really only right at the end, but her power's already so far beyond anything that's humanly possible. Mm. I suppose the argument is that we're following her journey. And the f- as she is psychologically catching up with yeah. what she, that of which she's physically capable. Do you think... I don't think the film is necessarily trying to gain tension out of, ooh, is she going to succeed? I don't think that's... Except maybe for one bit at the end where Mr. Jang is creeping up on her as she's going from 99% to 100%. 
I don't think there's ever really meant to be a moment when we're meant to doubt whether she's going to do what she wants to. Um, before we started recording this, we were having a conversation about Doctor Who cliffhangers, and believe it or not, this is relevant. Um, we were talking about the fact that sometimes there are bad cliffhangers in Doctor Who, where who'd, who'd have thought it, um, where they will just go, oh no, it's part one of a four-part story, is the Doctor going to survive? And of course the answer is yes, of course she is. And, and in that case, they're ringing suspense out, or trying to ring suspense out of the wrong thing. They're trying to ring suspense out of, is the Doctor dead? To which you know the answer is no. obviously no. Yeah. And, and it, sorry, and in this case, she's achieved godhood, so we know that she's going to do everything she wants to. And I don't think the film ever falls into that trap of making us doubt if she's going to do that. So in some ways, we're just we're following her rather than wondering what's going to happen. Well, the alternative to the cliffhanger situation was it wasn't an issue of is the Doctor going to survive? It's how is the mm. Doctor going to survive? How is he or yeah. she going to get out of this? But my concern is that if you're God, you can just, yeah. you can just wave your hand and not I suppose that's trust. true. You're not even... Even the how becomes irrelevant in a way, doesn't it? Because she, she because just she can, she just can yeah. Hmm... I don't know. It's into yeah. I, it it comes. It, it's a little bit like um, the Superman paradox. Yes. Which is he can't be too super, otherwise there's <laughs> yes. no story. Yeah. If he can just look at Lex Luthor and Lex Luthor turns into a baby or something. Yes. Then there's no story, but he has to be all powerful because that's Superman. Yeah. That, so it's it's that tension between the. Um, the limits of power and yeah. the limits of storytelling. And there are a few... There's a, there's an odd sequence in the plot... Again, sorry, we're jumping around all over the plot of this film, but there's a sequence in the plane bathroom where she suddenly starts turning into dust uh, and has to eat more of the drugs for, some, for, uh, for no, no real reason that I could see. But, but I suppose that's, that's how you write Jeopardy into the film, is by... Not so much is she going to succeed or how is she going because she's God she can do anything, but is her is her power going to overwhelm her before she's done everything that she wants to? Yeah. Mm. She goes back to um, Mr. Jen's home and impales his hands on his chair. Oh, that's right. Yes. And um, she discusses whether the nature of humanity is primitive and an obstacle to its own development. It's I th now I could be wrong, but I think that's quite a Buddhist idea. The idea that um, man's primitive nature prevents him from reaching higher things. Yeah, it's a bit like the a, a bit like the is it the joke in Monty Python's The Meaning of Life in the Crimson Permanent Assurance where they're talking about the fact that people get distracted by trivia. Um, and they, they say something like they've done some research and they've discovered that first of all that people aren't buying enough hats and then he says and we've also discovered that blah blah and they go off on this thing about they've discovered that trivia distracts people from the pursuit of God at perfection and then of course suddenly the media goes what was that you were saying about hats <laughs> yeah it's terrible weather we've had recently yeah it? oh yeah raining all bloody day boom boom yes she calls uh, Norman over the phone and over the television, and over the oh, computer, yes, yeah. and through his kettle. Yeah, and I think, 
I think this is. I, I think at this point, and you need. Do you know any physicists you can ask about this? Because I think. Ed Bloomer. Oh well, there you go. Ask him about this sequence because I think he demonstrates that the speed of light is also an illusion. I don't think he should be capable of just appearing on somebody's TV instantaneously like that. I, I, I vaguely feel there should be a time delay, but I'm no physicist. You're probably right. But it's the kind of, and I think, is this the second time I've mentioned Neil deGrasse Tyson now? I think yeah. this is the kind of boring nitpicking that he's famous for, so let's just move on. Well, again, it's the film science we know and yeah. suspect, so we can kind of skate over yeah. it. Um, they discuss um, the nature of life, what is life for? Mm. And uh, Dr. Norman, which is a great name, posits that it's to pass on knowledge yeah. from one generation to the next. So that's what Lucy should be trying to do. All the knowledge and understanding that she's gaining by mm. looking into the centre of the universe, like Ray Milland, she should try and pass on in some way. Yeah, and actually that's the one really smart thing about this film, because that's the one thing that often gets missed. I, I, I used to get there's a, there's a couple of episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation that really bug me because people get elevated by higher beings and become incredibly smart and program the warp engines to take them to the centre of the galaxy and meet new aliens and things and there's never an indication that people are writing this stuff down that <laughs> stuff just happens and then next week they're back to the same technology and, and that's the one thing I for the fact that we've not this film a little bit of having dull philosophy. I do like the fact that the, the core message of this is, is just make notes. Write stuff down and pass it on. Yeah. It's the, the expansion of the human understanding mm. of the universe. Whether that be through scarfing down a big pile of drugs, which is one option, yeah. or uh, scientific research <laughs> and, um, and uh, publishing scientific papers yeah. um, that uh, expanding one's understanding of the universe is a good and noble pursuit and beneficial to the rest of humanity as a whole yeah um, it's got a weird way of going about yes, that uh, yeah. I did describe this film I think it was to my mother as um, Besson saw 2001 and decided it needed more car chases and gunfights <laughs> that's, that's a pretty fair description to be honest she calls up the French police. Yes, well, that's it, yeah. And uh, explains the drug smuggling and way, way, where they can pick up all the, the drug men. And on the plane to Paris, she's typing very fast on two, on two different Yes, ostentatiously typing on two laptops, yeah. Which are doing all kinds of science stuff yeah. on the screen. It reminds me of um, uh, a scene I heard about. I, it may have been CSI, where... Um, someone's trying to hack into the CSI uh. computer and whoever's whoever's doing the anti-hacking can't type fast enough. So <laughs> one of the other CSI people comes in and says, oh, uh, hey, I'll help. And so he starts typing along with her on the same keyboard. Uh. What? <laughs> computers computers don't, they yeah. can't do that. What, what are they typing? It's not like a piano. Uh, who yes, who knows? That's that's one of those great sort of tropes of of, fil of of films, isn't it? Though where they want to show that somebody's super smart, or well, obviously in this case, yes. Look, she's so smart, she has to have two. 
computers. And it's probably just lucky that she doesn't have two on the floor when she's typing with her big, <laughs> big toes as well or something. No, she could turn her, because she's got control yeah, over of her course. body, she could turn her feet into another set of hands. Yes, I hadn't thought of that. Um, and she drinks a glass of champagne and that starts to unravel her physical being. Is it the? Sh- I suppose maybe it's the champagne that that sets that off a little bit. That she just gets slightly drunk or something and loses control. And she starts, yeah, she starts dissolving all over the place. Mm. Uh, locks herself in the loo, wolfs down another bag of drugs. Yes. Well, the re- rest of the bag of drugs. Uh, yes, because yes, because I, yeah. there's the one. Yes. Yeah, it's her her bag, isn't it? Yeah. And um, in a blaze of light, we cut them to a hospital where she's recovering. That's right, yes. I suppose, why in the hell not? It's a slightly awkward storytelling moment, really, isn't it? Yeah. So let's just skip over it and get to the next scene. Um, and she confronts the cop, who's called Del Rio, and says, oh, we need to talk. She waves her hand, and everyone else in the room drops unconscious. That's right, in a very nice little... In, it's sometimes difficult to do things like that in a way that kind of makes it look eerie but that's actually very very well done because everyone just kind of folds like paper napkins don't yeah. they yeah so they head off into town uh, to get to Professor Morgan Freeman and because she can read cell phone data flowing through the air she knows that Gian and his men are on the way mm. they've got a, apparently a very fast plane that can catch up the one that she was on yes yeah and we have the one-car car chase zooming through the middle of Paris. That she should have used her god powers to drive in such a way as to not hit any other cars. Yeah, but she could have just... I can't help feeling she could have used her powers differently at that point. Because, yeah... I'm... Or like in some way, like because she causes all these police cars to crash, mm. in some way, like hitting all the stalls and that she passes in such a way as the cars fall on the stalls and they're sort of cushioned. Yeah. Yeah, something slightly less traumatic for everyone concerned. Um, but I suppose it's easy to it's easy to it's to, it's easy to stage an exciting action sequence. It's presumably a lot harder and a lot more expensive to stage an exciting action sequence where everyone's safe. I don't I don't think anyone was thinking about it. This is the, it never went beyond that this is the exciting chase sequence, did it? But I think it, it's a pity. It would have been, I think, more interesting to, mm. to really think it through. To, because um, Lucy says later that she's keeping Del Rio with her because yeah. he's, a, he's a link to normalcy, to humanity. She needs him there to act as like a, an external conscience. Yeah. Like uh, when they're driving, he says, careful or we'll die. He says, we never really die. Yes. <laughs> and I, I even wondered if that line was, was kind of written in to sort of post-justify the, the body count up to that <laughs> point. But uh... Apart from the guy on the operating table. Oh, yes, yeah. Who he could have presumably cured. Would that have... She couldn't... She couldn't have cured him at that point, but yeah. Yeah, that's fine. I'm not going to... See, see, that's the problem. When one yeah. character's god, they can fix everything. Yeah. Um, so the drugs are the drug. Oh, the, the drug smugglers are, are retrieved and they're dragged over to Paris, and um, 
there's a shootout between them. Have I, missed, have I turned over two pages at once? No, I don't think so. <laughs> the film, we're into we're into the third. We're in, we're, we're getting towards the end of Inception, and we're moving. Yes, yeah, yeah. We're still in the Inception phase at this point, aren't we? Yes, that's it. Well, that's what's happened. the The gangs have intercepted the drug people and they've cut them open and taken the bags out. Yes, and they've turned out not to be very nice and Julian no. Tut's speech was a big lie. It turns out that the, this executive in a drug cartel was a, was a nasty man. Yeah. Good Lord, who would have guessed? Not to say. And Lucy's at 60% and she gets the drugs back by creating a force field um, freezing the lead drug man and making all the others float through the air. Yes. Apart from one whom she blasts through a wall. That's Yeah, that's right. Um, yes, sorry, I just had to try and mentally rewind. And, yes. Um, they all run up to her to start throwing punches at her, but they just sort of gently just float, float away. towards the ceiling. So I thought it's, it, it's, that's more of what we should have seen yes. earlier, that it's, she's using her powers just to get these little mm. these insects out of her way, but not in a way that is violent or aggressive, just, yeah. just move them to one side. Yeah, and it, almost in the way that it's because... It would be like using a blowtorch in an ant's nest or something. You just, yeah, just you don't need to do anything. No, just, just wave them. Just I do go over there. Like the idea that she's broken their personal gravity, and that when they're in court on trial, they have to be tethered <laughs> to the <laughs> prosecution box because they no longer touch the ground ever. Don't they? Don't, doesn't she drop them to the ground? Does she? Oh, I don't. I maybe can't remember, I can't remember. They do all turn up for the big gunfight at the end, so I guess they get their gravity back. Yes, well, they're bad men. Yeah. They're bad yeah. drug men. Um, so she's now got all the bags of she's got all drugs. The, she's got the other bags of drugs. She's um, got the policeman, hasn't she? And, and um, they're on the phone with uh, Professor Morgan Freeman. He says, oh, can you, can you meet me? Oh, yeah. Can you meet me here? And she walks through the door. Okay. Yeah. And... Um, she explains her philosophy about how time is the mm. fundamental unit of reality. Doesn't make sense. No. Um, and gets hooked up to the chair to have all the rest of the drugs poured Oh, into that's her. right, yes. Because she needs to reach 100% for some... Because she has to reach 100%. Because she has because to, because that's the movie. That's the plot of the film, yeah, yeah. I was going to write the note that it hurts her to think down to our level, which is, I think, what Marvin complains about. In yes, it is, isn't galaxy. it? Yeah. Um, one interesting point is that uh, Norman says that he's concerned about how the spread of knowledge, her ultimate knowledge, might bring chaos. And she implies that only ignorance truly brings chaos. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, no, again, it's... If we knew the, the truth about whether or not God existed, yeah. do you think that there would be more or less chaos in the world? That's... I suppose it would depend on the nature of God. If if we knew that there was a God, and regardless of of whether or not you go to church mm. or, or 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 to a mosque or to synagogue, whatever, if you lead a good life, there is a heaven yeah. equivalent. In a bad life, there is a hell equivalent. What do you think the react the the general global reaction might be? I think the I think there would be a period of absolute chaos and I think there would be some people I think actually it would affirm some people's faith in whatever they currently believed in that had been proven to be 
false because I think some people would have a kind of bloody-minded determinism that no I'm going to carry on believing in what I want to believe and if that God exists then maybe my God exists in some way I think a lot of the response would be a kind of boring pragmatism you would see a lot of books appear on the market about how to definitely get into how to live life the way you want to but definitely still get into heaven at the end I love that you're thinking about this in the most practical terms, particularly in terms of books. Yeah, there would be, but there would be... I'm thinking about like world wars, dictators, no, what kind of books would they be selling? I just, I I think in the end, I I, I think that people would, well, if, if if God turns up and goes, hello, I exist... Be good and you'll get into yeah. heaven, heaven or equivalent. Be bad and you'll go to hell or equivalent. What's the alternative except to go, I don't, I mean, I'm, I'm, an, I'm an atheist, but if God turned up and said, no, actually you're wrong and here's how you get to heaven, it's like, okay. Okay, yeah. I don't see that any pragmatism just seems to be the sensible. It's like, um, yeah, if that's, I mean, that's the fundamental aspect of atheism, I think, is that we base our behaviour on things that are proven. Mm. And if God suddenly turns up, well, that's proof of God then. Yeah. And the and great that, that's kind of made that decision for us. And the great thing is that you you don't have to then believe in God. No, you, you know don't, he's there. You or don't, she or yeah, it. You don't have to make a single change to the way you make your life, except that at that point, that once you know that you can be good to get into heaven, there is, for want of a better word, a legal definition of good. So so long as you um, so that if, for example, it turns out the Egyptian gods were all the right ones, and in order to get into the afterlife you have to prove that you haven't polluted the waters of the Nile, then great, I'll just make sure I never pollute the waters of the Nile. But that could be the waters anywhere in the world, because the water system as a whole. But, but once you've established rules, you can start arguing over them. That's the great thing is that every I think the I think the number of lawyers I'll tell you what you would see you would see afterlife lawyers you would see people that you could take on and their job would be to guarantee you a place in heaven by interpreting the rules in such a way that you have that they have to let you in. I think we need to write this up as a TV series. Possibly, pitch. it's possible we might be giving away a whole great concept. Here. I have I have already come up with an idea of. Uh, vaguely similar to this, which I'm not going to say on the podcast because it's my bloody idea. Um, but um, lawyers who specialise in uh, afterlife law. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. What, uh, what, that, what series would that, what, what would that be called then? I don't know. I don't have a good snappy punning title to hand, unfortunately. Um no, I keep thinking of like LA law and thinking there must be some hilarious pun that you can do like that. But then again, who remembers LA that? law? Yeah, there you go. But surely all lawyers are in service to the devil. Well, maybe that's your maybe that's the conflict of the series. Ah. So there's a, the gunfights going on outside as uh, Lucy oh, yes. grows tendrils, and uh, mm. and everyone gets projected into a white void. Yep. And a weird computer's made. And then there's a bazooka blast and she's propelled off into time and space. Yes. Um, and this is where it gets into proper Star Child stuff. Yes. She goes back in time and meets Lucy, doesn't she? Yes. And there's a slightly plonkingly awful 
bit where she reaches out her hand to touch Lucy's finger, and it's exactly the same as um, the drawing of Adam, God and the, the Spark of the Life. Drawing. The drawing. Yes, yeah. You know, the, the, um, you know, you know, the, the, the Microsoft Paint thing. But, yeah, um, the sketch that Michelangelo did, yeah. the doodle. That's the one. Um, but yeah, she starts to transcend time and space. Um, going back to the creation of the Earth and the dawn of the universe. That's it. There's a bit of a light show. Then there's a bit with some special effects that are like weird jellyfish or something. I'm not sure what that was all about. Aren't those cells? Oh, they Wasn't might. Wasn't that the cells yeah. of her body cracking open? Oh, and could be. Drugs and stuff? Maybe. Yeah. Um, just as uh, Mr. Jones is finally closing in. Yes. And she's turning all black, like under the skin. Yes, that's what the computer... That's what it all reminded me of towards the end, is, yeah, the sequence from Under the Skin. Because it's all in a white void, mm. and it's for no reason other than... It's never explained. It looks good. Um, and she goes back to, back to creation, and maybe before creation, and everything's mm. going in reverse. Beyond time itself, and the last few cells crack open, and it reaches 100%, and... All the way through the film, you get the captions on screen of what percentage her brain's at. It gets to 100% at the exact moment that yeah. Jen shoots, shoots her in the head. But she vanishes before the bullets reach her. Hmm. And then uh, the cop comes in and shoots. Yes. <laughs> and the computer spits out a little USB stick <laughs> yes, yeah. that's made of star matter. And I didn't notice this until I watched it on the Blu-ray, that it's not just a little black USB stick. It's... If you look at it, it's got the stars in, and as they move, as they move it around, it's like it's a window. Oh, okay, that's that's a very nice understated effect that I completely failed to pick up on. Previously, yeah, I really like that. I'd only seen it recorded from TV, and you've got it on DVD. Yes, there, yeah. So it might not have been visible, mm. but in an HD, you can see quite clearly that it's it's like it's this window into the universe. Hmm. And obviously, the gag is that the USB stick has the dimensions of 1 to 3 to 9. Oh, okay. No, 1 to 4 to 9, which is supposed to be the dimensions of the monolith. Yeah. Um, so Del Rio asks where Lucy's disappeared to, and he gets a text message saying... I am everywhere. And then the film ends. Yes. Well, and now you know what to do with life. Yes. Uh, as you say, apparently take lots of drugs don't, and don't, transcend. Don't talk to me about life. Um... As an action director's approach to questions on the meaning of existence, I think it's quite impressive. I mean, it's like if Michael Bay had really tried hard, really worked his little heart out yeah. to make a film about the big questions of the universe, it yeah. wouldn't be any good, obviously. But it's interesting to see someone who does car chases and gunfights and all that kind of stuff really well do something that's much more mm. heady and complex. Like they've they've just read their first like popular science book and it's just blown their yes. mind. Yeah. And they want to make a film about it. And the science is junk. And it exists solely to advance the story and to, to do yeah. these crazy ideas that he's had. But as a delivery system for really good action stuff. And some, some pretty good performances. And a great performance from Scarlett Johansson. The great underrated actress of our time. And also to deliver these weird mind-bending questions 
and mm. to deliberately just make the put the audience off their ease with it bizarre light shows. I think this is a bit of an underrated gem. I yeah. I'm uh, I, whether uh, going back to what we were talking about the the start and whether I have actually seen this twice or not. Um, yeah, I think I did. I was kind of surprised at how much I liked it, and, and although there are times when I drifted out of sympathy with the main character and rolled my eyes at the philosophy and stuff, yeah, it it hangs together really, really well. It's trying to be something interesting and unusual. Yes. It's not. It's not taking an easy path. I do respect that a great deal. Yeah. That, it, that it's it's making an effort to be unusual and distinctive. Yeah, it's it, it it it's definitely. If nothing else, okay, yes, if the science is junk, but if it encourages people to go and look up the science, can you know to go to Google and type in can people actually use a hundred percent of their brains or something? Um, I, it's like the, it's the line everyone always comes up with, isn't it? Where they that people sort of glibly say, oh, I'd rather watch one interesting failure than. You know, a, a succession of bland but you know bland but workable films, and I don't think it's not really even. For, this is a long way above an interesting failure because it's still a good action it, film in its own way. But it's a bit like was it in was it again Inception where people kept describing it as the blockbuster for people that read or something, <laughs> um, which I thought was a bit self-aggrandizing. Really. Yes. Um, did have to explain the plot of Inception to a number of people, but I think that's that's because people aren't used to mm. action movies that also require a lot of intellectual engagement. Yes, it's this doesn't require a lot of intellectual engagement. You can kind of let it just yeah. wash over you. Um, in Inception, you really have to engage with yeah. it. Um, but again, this is this is a ninety-minute action picture. You can almost imagine this being made in the seventies, yeah. much of, much cheaply and much more. Um, Fast and loose, but still have, you know, be a mixture of like f- the French Connection and Phase Four. Mm. Oh God, yeah, it would make a fantastic sort of early seventies vaguely art house film, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. Jane Fonda. Yes, yeah, Jane Fonda could could have done it. Could get um, Saul Bass to direct another film. Not Saul Bass. Who am I thinking of? Title sequence guy. Yeah. Oh, it is Saul Bass. For yeah. some reason, I suddenly thought he was the guy that did the music for Psycho. Um, Bernard Herman. Yeah, I'm, the title music, the title sequence. Was yes, Bass. I'm getting my title sequence and title music people. But yeah, yeah, get Saul Bass to direct his second film. And uh, who could we cast as Morgan Freeman? Who was the go-to guy in the seventies for that kind of um, Marlon Brando? Not really. Oh no, he'd take over the whole thing. Um, Roy Scheider. Yeah. Yeah, maybe on Peter Cushing. Not, but Peter Cushing's that kind of right mix of reassuring yet possibly scientific. That Christopher Lee. Yeah, yeah. Christopher Lee might do it. That, well, that's it then. Saul Bass. Well, right. <laughs> okay. So we have to build first build the time machine. Yeah. Take a copy of the script back to the seventies and get Saul Bass to remake this with Jane Fonda and Christopher Lee. It can't miss. Absolutely. Well, in the meantime, you'll be pleased to hear that uh, a sequel is being on uh, on the way. Okay. Um, how exactly that's going to work, I don't know. Yeah. Um, maybe maybe she's going to come back and embody herself in another body and uh, turn the rest of the world into Lucy's. 
and then we'll all, we'll all be gods running around in the cosmos. Yeah, I don't know. I actually can't see how a sequel can work without going back over the same ground as the first film. But then again, I suppose, I, I suspect in the run-up to the release of 2010, people were going, how can you possibly do a sequel to 2001? Well, um, Besson has a script written. Right. Uh, Johansson is apparently on board. Oh, but this, of course, is post-Valerian, I guess, now. Is... Yes. Well, Lucy wasn't a hugely expensive picture. I think right. it only cost about $40 million, which is less than a quarter of what Valerian cost. Oh, right. And Lucy was a big commercial hit. Uh, it made something like $400 million worldwide. Uh, Valerian didn't even make its own budget back. Mm. So maybe we'll see that. I'd, mm. I'd be interested in finding out, Yeah. Um, as people have said about Moonwalker... Um, once you become a god, where else is there to go? Luke Besson has an idea, apparently, and I don't want to know what it is. <laughs> Thanks to Chris for making time for this recording. Cinema Limbo is now on iTunes with more than 50 episodes available, so please download, review and subscribe. We're also on Twitter, at cinema underscore limbo, and Podnose is also on Patreon, so please do make a one-off or regular contribution to help with our running costs. I'm also participating in the Alzheimer's Society Memory Walk in October, so please, if you can, go to the Just Giving page at www.justgiving.com slash fundraising slash MW308839 and sponsor me. It's very much appreciated. However, until next time, I am everywhere. You have been listening to Cinema Limbo. Hosted and produced by Jeremy Phillips, with editing and music by Philip Alderman. Cinema Limbo is part of the Podnose Podcasting Network, so please visit us at www.podnose.com. <laughs>